Hello, welcome to Must See Audio. Thanks for taking the time to download the podcast. Uh, this show is brought to you by you. So if you'd like to go over to Must See Audio's Patreon and help the show out, every tier is the same, meaning that you can give the show exactly what you think it's worth and you can help me out in the process. Anyway, thank you and please enjoy the show. Well, hello, Michael Joseph. Thanks for joining me again today, mate. Hello, and good to be here with you. Yeah, um, I think that like there's a couple of couple of things that I w- I wanted to go over today, and uh, the first one really was you, uh, I saw you post the other day about um, um, Manx policing statistics on the Isle of Man, and uh, yep. it sent right. it sent me into a bit of a no no I wouldn't say rabbit hole, but certainly made me more aware of looking at policing over the whole of the UK. I've, I I just wanted to get your opinion on it, to be perfectly honest. Sure. And so I guess that the, the, the first of all, for, you, for the benefit of the listeners at home, um, the key difference that we're talking about in the Isle of Man compared to Ireland or compared to the UK is that here in the Isle of Man, there has been an extraordinarily large number of people who have been arrested on a per capita basis. And so by that, we mean is that for the Isle of Man, which has 84,000 people, there's been about 84 people who have been arrested. During roughly the same timeline, in the United Kingdom, which is 66 million people, it has had just 217 people be arrested. Many of them were subsequently withdrawn and the, the charge thrown out because they stuffed up the charging. But, but either way, uh, what we can see there is that, is that in the Isle of Man, you're about 286 times more likely to get arrested uh, than you are in the United Kingdom. Uh, and to compare to the island, which is uh, in between, there's about 26 more arrests per capita in the Isle of Man uh, than there are in Ireland, which is a very big difference. You know, normally, you know, the, the, you know, the number of people who get, you know, charged or arrested for, you know, uh, arrests for like things like robbery or, or uh, for other crimes like murder and so on, you know, the various you know, a few orders of percent, you know, five or 10 or 20 or 30% from one jurisdiction to another. And so for this to be a difference of, of 28,000% is really quite extraordinary. So some very different differences in our idols here. Well, I suppose, you know, when you look at um, like arrest rates and stuff like that, you would think it's, it only starts to like vary that wildly when you've got sort of huge economic distance, differences between countries, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly right. And so these these differences are really weird. Uh, and so in my when I shared these stats publicly, uh, what, was, what was sort of funny here is that I did not make any particular in many of the comments share when I shared these this data. I just shared the data. I said, look, you get about two, twenty five times more likely to get arrested here in the Isle of Man than in Ireland, and about two hundred and eighty or three hundred fifty times more likely than in the UK. And people um, were quite <laughs> quite I think shocked. But very defensive of, of the Manx government on this, and that uh, you know I think there are a lot of people you know, and then when I talk about sharing that, I'm obviously sharing it with my local social media feed and people who you know have an interest in Michael Joseph, which is not many, but they're part of my community, and so they want to really support their local government, um, and uh, it's quite extraordinary to see these differences um, because, as you're right, you, you are entirely right that you would expect normally these differences to be you know with wildly different you know economic or or underlying issues. Uh, but, you know, the rate of infection in the Isle of Man is roughly similar to the rate of infection uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, the, the death rate from the coronavirus is, is substantially lower than in the United Kingdom, but it's very similar to in Ireland. Uh, and so to have 
wildly different arrest rates, but very similar infection and death rates for the coronavirus, um, I think it's worth interesting, uh, worth having a look at. Do you think that the um, the laws that laws or and um, I, sometimes I don't even know whether to call them laws because it all seems very woolly. It seems very open to input interpretation. Um, do you think sure, that's well, part of the problem? They're, cer- they're certainly laws, and so they, they, they were introduced by the government into, under this state of emergency. They have the full force of law. If you break them, you go to prison, um, and so for. For all for all means and purposes, there's certainly the rules, um, and you know, in in practice, they are the laws that we have to abide by. Yeah, um, it just seems it seems like something that is being applied to to different people depending on who they are. Like it's I, there's there seems to be a an uptick in people that have already been in trouble, like um, that have got previous history, and now obviously, I suppose that could explain, but you know why they've been in trouble now is because they have a history of breaking the law anyway. But I can't help thinking that maybe people are being arrested because the faces don't fit in these particular situations and maybe then they're not given quite the leniency that other people are given. Yeah, absolutely. And so we know through the, you know, through the history of the 20th century is that laws that can be equal on their face can impact differently on different communities. And invariably, in literally every community in the world, the people that get locked up the most um, are those people who do not have the social capital. They do not have the connections to the community. Um, they're typically people who are poorer, um, and therefore they end up in the circle of, of desperation and violence. Uh, and you see that very obviously in the U.S. in the American case, um, where you had through the civil rights time, you know, you had, and, and even after the, the civil rights acts of the 1960s, um, you saw a, a widespread um, situation where young black men were much more likely to get arrested than young white men. Uh, and so part of that may have been through to racial discrimination on the part of individual officers and individual uh, agencies, um, but it's also probably somewhat correlated to um, other associated issues, such as how wealthy those families are. So we know that poorer people are more likely to get arrested. Um, and it also probably relates in some way through to uh, you know the family structure. Uh, we know that uh, if you grow up in... Uh, in in uh, in a in a family that has two parents still living there, uh, you get a lot more support for kids, and can often those parents can provide a lot more guidance. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are, who are now having kids, and it's struggle, such a struggle for them as, as two people. Uh, and so I can only imagine the struggle for single parents and other people from uh, you know disrupted families. Uh, and so and so we know throughout the world that when uh, that that when wars are applied equally. Uh, you know, poorer people get locked up more. Um, people from racial minorities get locked up more, and, and other disadvantaged people get locked up more. And so that's probably what's going to happen here as well with this law. I find it interesting actually. There's there's an awful lot of pushback on that. Um, that it's even though it's I, I know the numbers back up what you just said. The the fact that if you come from what you would think of as like a um, a, a a normal for want of better words family or a, fa- a, a, a full family unit, um, you're more, you're less likely to go to prison. It's amazing the pushback you get from people when you say that. I, I find it really strange that it's, it, it almost, it almost feel, feels like there's an uh, hostility almost to the family unit in the modern world. Well, look, you know, that could well be the case. You know, like I, I know that growing up, you know, my, my parents separated when I was about 10 or 11 or thereabouts, and it was a struggle for them. It was tough. Uh, and, you know, I was so fortunate and so very privileged that I had two parents who cared for me and loved me and uh, and looked after me so so wonderfully. And, you know, I, I 
So I'm very grateful and eternally grateful for that. Uh, but there are also some people in our community who do not have that level of support. Uh, you know, I was speaking with my father, um, you know, literally just this morning, and we were talking about the importance of social capital. Uh, and that social capital is so important to keep people living happy, healthy lives. Uh, and, 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 you know, it would be, I cannot imagine a situation whereby Michael Joseph, whereby I ever was, was homeless because I have such a wonderful network of friends and people who will support me. Uh, and and I am that is you know the true source of my good fortune in life, and that I have a wonderful network of people who who love for me and, and care for me and so on. Uh, but other people do not have that level of support and do not have those networks. Uh, and so when those people um, you know are affected by and you know whether and we don't, don't even need to get into the underlying causes, but when they are affected by by substance abuse, whether it be alcohol or drugs or whatever, uh, you know they can uh, go off the rails a lot faster, a lot more easily. Uh, and so, and so that's why you know we need to be very careful to to care and support you know everyone in our community. Yeah, um, back to the uh, like the subject of policing. I remember I said on uh, a podcast maybe maybe two months ago now. Uh, I I felt like there was a um, there was a massive opportunity coming for the police where the it could have really been brought back to. Um, like the, a sense of community policing again. You know, it's it's something that I think that um, it gets thrown around quite a lot for the idea of like Bobby's on the beat and trying to essentially use an old fashioned language for uh, various things to give it a nostalgic feel. I think, um, but I also said that there was a danger that if if these like extra powers aren't used properly, you could find the um, the public perception turning. On, on the police. Um, I, I think we might be at that point right now where, especially coming out of lockdown, if police aren't careful with the tools that they've got given, I, I think we're going to see a, 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 a massive shift in the attitude of not just the... Um, not just like the lower working class people where you're kind of used to hearing a bit of the sort of anti... Um, authoritarian banter but most more so like sort of in your uh, more comfortable middle class people as well yeah look i can imagine that i think different people will react differently to to um, the authority in in situations like this uh, you know i am uh, you know someone who believes very strongly that the that the people of these islands the british isles in, including you know not just the united kingdom and great britain but also ireland the isle of man and the channel islands that these people the people of these islands have been the greatest force for good precisely because of the institutional um, strengths that, that these people created. Uh, you know, the Scottish Enlightenment, you know, 400 years ago, you know, on this day, what was that, in 1649, um, there was the abolition of the monarchy, which was fundamentally, it was a, 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 pop, a population rising up against a, uh, an authoritarian dictator who refused to listen to Parliament. Uh, and so time and time again, uh, these people created, uh, you know, very, very basic, you know, human rights that we all take for granted today. This idea of you know being innocent until proven guilty, having being able to have a had a being able to have a fair trial. These things are all things that you know we more or less take for granted. Uh, and so, one of the things that I think is really important about this is to is to really hold on to that that heritage, uh, and to and to really celebrate that thing. And so, when we see you know people being uh, incarcerated uh, by default, um, then I think that should be scaring a lot of people. Uh, when I when we see people, you know, here in the Isle of Man, you know, we, we had 
people who were locked up in cells literally 24 hours a day, which is extraordinary. Uh, you know, some of these people had, had access to merely two showers a week. Uh, and these are people who have not even had their trial yet. You know, and so I, I can accept, you know, that, you know, those people who are, who are, who are evil, evil doers, you know, treat them badly. But some of these people still were innocent. And so, and so in that sense, uh, you know, I think we need to be super careful about the whole justice system and ensure that, you know, we, we recognise there's a difference between those people who are evil, who are malicious, who are, who are trying to infect people. And, you know, for all I care, you can, you know, throw them down, a, throw them at the bottom of the, the den and you can lock them away. Um, but then there are also people who are stupid, uh, and we need to differentiate between those people who are evil and those people who are stupid. Yeah, the uh, the two shower a day thing. Considering that the no, not hang on, wait, not not two showers. Sorry, a day, so two, two showers, showers a week. week sorry, <laughs> um, the considering that we've all we've been talking about is sort of cleanliness through this. The whole epidemic has been the main tool for fighting this is cleanliness. That seems right. It's, a, it's counterintuitive. B seems unnecessarily cruel yeah exactly you know like, like these these are still humans uh, you know some of them have done dumb things and some of them have done, may have done evil things um, but, but all these people still need to be held held you know in, in ways that that we you know, thought we'd you know solved and overcome a hundred years ago you know, the idea of, of having regular showers is you know it's, we, we, we should be big enough as a, as a, as a, as a community to be able to give even accused offenders, you know, more than two showers a week. Mm. I, I think we can probably should be able to find that in our hearts to do. <laughs> um, I, I, that's something I've been very, very interested in on social media side of it. Because, to be perfectly honest, I, like I, um, I, I uh, brave's not the right word, but I, I have a great deal of respect for you for putting stuff up on social media as for when it comes to statistics and things like you said about people being very defensive uh, about the government for certain uh, to a certain extent, which I find very weird because up until this, it's it seemed like there was there, there was no um, there was no end to scrutiny of the government, even even in places where it probably wasn't really warranted. Yeah, there was ve- very little support, but now there seems to be more support than than ever. Yeah, and there should be. I want to support the government. I want to support them. You know, we have this, you know, as a community, we are facing a literally massive challenge here. You know, there are you know huge numbers of people dying in the UK. There are huge numbers of people who have died here in the Isle of Man. Uh, and, and this is a horrific thing that is, you know, literally a, a disaster. Uh, and so I want to support the government. Uh, and, and so it's it's sort of bizarre for me. You know, like I, 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 I never really thought of myself as a particularly bleeding heart sort of guy. And, you know, and here I am, you know, in arguing in favour of things such as presumption of innocence, uh, being able to, you know, to more than two showers a week. These are not these are not ideas that are that are extreme by any stretch of the imagination. Do you think it's fear? Do you think it's the um, that that point where people have to believe that someone's right in the in the way that uh, un, until very recently, wasn't it? The uh, conservative government had like a very a big approval rating. We just took a bit of a dive at the minute. I think. I, I don't think. I, th- I think that you'll find if you look at the latest polling that you know, it's, it's surged. Oh, did it? Has it? I haven't said. Yeah. And, and so I think, I think this is happening essentially everywhere in the world except for the USA, um, whereby people seem to have their view of Donald Trump, and it seems to be pretty steady within the narrow range. It's a team um, sport, but, isn't it, in the US? Yeah, exactly right. And so here in here in the Isle of Man, you know, I want to support the government. I want them to do the right thing. 
Uh, and so it, it just annoys me that they keep on making it so hard, you know, whether it be, you know, silly things about trying to have the sneaky surprise, uh, you know, public holiday movement, whether it be releasing yesterday, they released unemployment statistics, but they don't actually include everyone who's been, you know, laid off or made redundant and receiving government welfare payments. Uh, you know, whether it be, you know, even on the simple stuff like today, they, they say, hey, look, we're going to deliver, you know, broadband to 99 percent of people on the island. But then if you actually look into the fine print, you see that they yet again, they do the sneaky thing. It's not actually deliver. It's actually pass. And so what that means is that you don't actually have to be able to get on or off the, the information superhighway. There's no on ramps. But if the information superhighway goes past you, then that's good enough. Uh, and that's, you know, it's just, just, it just annoys me. It disappoints me. That's ridiculous. I, oddly enough, like just before where we came on, I, I read your post about that. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't even understand how that becomes a, like a, a piece of propaganda for you. It's, it just seems stupid to me. You know, the, the, the... Exactly. Like, there's no point having a train line if there's no train stations. No. Right? <laughs> the whole the whole purpose of of, of, of anything that trans transfers, uh, you know, goods or or ideas or knowledge or electronics is you you've got to be able to get on and off it, right? And, and and so that's you know, like out the front of my house, my technically my house has has so called uh, delivered fibre, uh, but I can't actually access it. You know, I, like it, it goes on the in the thing. I you know, there's no for neither love nor money can I get access to this this fiber internet. And so it's, it's stuff like this that I think that people will get increasingly annoyed um, at the you know government that plays sneaky word games rather than you know, acting and speaking like human people. It seems it seems odd. It's, it almost seems like there's a squandering of goodwill that's being garnered. I, I don't. Yes. Is that do you think it's a complacency? Look, I don't know. I, I think it's you've got these people who are speaking in their in their in their bubbles, uh, and so I think that the greatest uh, thing in the world is public publicity and transparency and discussion and openness. Uh, and so, whether it be for things such as access to the internet, but also you know, as as you know, you've shared you know some of the ideas about modelling and and science. You know, fundamentally, that is all based upon open discussion. That was fundamentally, again, you know, another one of the fundamental principles of the Scottish Enlightenment 400 years ago was, you know, the, the you know the Scottish people of of of, of Adam Smith, but you know, also I guess the English guys like Isaac Newton was based on this idea of logic and reason and openness and and uh, dispersed knowledge. And so, you know, here we are. Here we are, and I think that a lot of a lot of modern the last eighteen months uh, of, of political debate in in uh, in the UK, but also in the US and in our Western, you know, Anglo English speaking nations have been really relitigating the fights of the seventeenth century. Things like, you know, like. Donald Trump was trying to spend money on his war without getting approval for Congress. Well, that that was an issue in the in the English Civil War 350 years ago, right? and 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 everyone then had resolved that hey, you need you need approval from Parliament before you can raise taxes or, or spend money. Uh, you know, in the in the UK, you know, you have this debate about whether laws can be made without the consent of the Parliament. And you know, this was this is something we should have we debated. We we literally there was an English Civil War 350 years ago. Started today, 350 years ago. Um, 371 years ago, sorry, um, that we uh, had on this uh, issue. And so it's it's really quite bizarre for me um, to see us as a civilization having these same debates over and over again. Uh, speaking of d- data um, and tr- transparency and information coming forward, now, be- because this is such a new thing that we're in, it seems important to have as many sort of viewpoints uh, push forward as possible you know it's w- within 
within within the realms of sort of like normalcy and reason. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, although I don't um, I don't agree with the like say the say the banning of the David Icke interview. I also don't think we should put that forward as a scientific paper either. Um, but I I sent you an article or two articles um, last week before you came on about the um, an epidemiologist. I think his name was uh, Kunt Wachowski, Was it? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I won't try to pronounce his name. I'll leave that for you. To, yeah. <laughs> just there. But uh, um, um, yes. What did you think of that? I mean, this is this is a guy that um, I believe is the head of the Rockefeller. University Center for Clinical uh, and Traditional Science. You know, in any any other time, you would consider you would have thought his name with what he'd done would have put him on the news as being referred to as an expert. But he he see, he seems to have been sort of banished here for having maybe the wrong opinion on things. Yeah, absolutely. And so he is a he's a scientist. You know, he's a former. Former head of biostatistics, uh, epidemiology, and research research design at Rockefeller University, uh, and so on one hand, he's he's not a crank, um, and his expertise, you know, has has relevance for you know if you're if you're the on the news news program, you're the news anchor, and you've got to introduce a guy. It makes sense to talk about this band, uh, you know, to provide context to the audience of you know of who this person is. Mm. Uh, but fundamentally, science is not based upon calls to authority. You know, the whole premise of, of science, you know, starting from Galileo 400 or 500 years ago, how long ago he was, you know, through to, through to you know, the Adam Smiths and then the Isaac Newtons and the other scientists uh, that, that really led off the Scottish Enlightenment, you know, in the 1600s and 1700s, uh, you know, they all were fundamentally based upon challenging the call to authority. There is no more obvious scientist uh, than Galileo Galilei himself who said, you yeah, know, look, you so-called experts in the church who say that the earth, uh, you know, is the center of the universe. Well, you're wrong. And here's the science of proof. Here's the, here's the analysis of, of Jupiter's moons. Here's, you know, the records. Here's a scientific thing. If you disagree with this, my, my hypothesis, then you provide an alternative hypothesis. But, uh, and, and so what they tried to do is they tried to squelch him, to, to suppress him. But because science is based on truth uh, and not based upon authority, uh, you know, the science eventually won. And I think the same thing will happen here. And I don't, I don't particularly know uh, about this Dr. Wachowski. Uh, you know, I make no, you know, endorsements of him. I make no criticism of him because, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know the guy. And, and But but the idea that we have a an American corporation like YouTube censoring him is very scary to me because who is YouTube responsible to? Mm. They're responsible to their shareholders. And, you know, why, you know, we allow our public debate about these very important policy debates to be defined within the limits that YouTube shareholders decide or Google shareholders ultimately, um, you know, I don't, I don't understand why we, anyone would think that is an acceptable course of action. No, that see when I read it, I mean, uh, it, it, it came out a couple of, couple of days after the, the article I sent you, um, that the video of, uh, I don't know if it was the video from the spiked interview or there was a different interview we did with somebody else, but the fact that that had been banned off YouTube but when you re- read in the article, and it was you know it was a it was a transcript interview. There was nothing in it that I would think was dangerous. Yeah, you know, apart I, I take it that what what they didn't have a uh, 
what they had a problem with was the fact he turned around and said that his opinion was that we could end lockdown now and it wouldn't make any difference because we'd already kind of hit herd immunity. Sure, and so that's that's a reasonable argument for him to make. Uh, I don't I don't know what the answer to that to, to the underlying substantive issue, but I have an issue with the 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 process here, and that is he should be able to have his view, and the, and and if someone disagrees with him, then the antidote, the cure is to argue against them in the in the court of public opinion. You know, if you think that, that, that Dr. Wachowski is right, then I'll go ahead and you can argue that. If you think he's wrong, go ahead and argue that. But I think that censorship is, is a bad thing because it fundamentally it suppresses the natural correcting tendency of science. Uh, and so if you believe in science, you should be opposing this sort of censorship because this is just corporate, corporate you know, behemoths in the US, uh, you know, making these rules about what is acceptable and what is not. Um, you know, I think there are some moral questions to be had about should YouTube be forced to to publish something that they disagree with? Well, probably not. Um, and and so I think there's, a, there's an interesting moral question about whether they whether what should happen to YouTube. But certainly, you know, I you know I have a very simple view on this: is that Dr. Wukowski should be able to say what he wants. You know, if he's right, then other people will listen to him and be persuaded. If he's wrong, then other people will be you know un, unpersuaded and will disagree with him. Mm. Um, I think this is more uh, evidence, isn't it, which uh, kind of people that have been looking at this sort of stuff already knew. But it's be, always been about um, elections or like various other opinions where it was may, maybe important to a certain section or a certain person. Uh, but this is such a global a global problem that just just having YouTube's view seems wrong and... If, if you're going to put yourself up there as this sort of essentially on, on the surface an open platform, you know, it's the same with Twitter and Facebook as well. If you're going to put yourself up there as an open platform and then edit content that comes on, especially when you consider that your YouTube especially are, are going around like destroying careers of people that have essentially built their business for them. Yeah, and so I think if you if you think back to George Orwell's book, 1984, he spoke about or wrote about a ministry of truth, mm. uh, a ministry of truth whereby a government department say this is true and this is not, uh, and anything that is not is censored. Uh, and so it's sort of scary that we do not have a ministry of truth, but what, rather we have a corporation of truth. And so you know, I don't I don't trust YouTube censors. Uh, you know, I've I've you know posted the odd thing on Facebook, and it's you know sometimes they've uh, censored some of my my uh, posts. Um, and, and it's always for idiotic and mundane things. So, for example, uh, you know, I posted a job wanting to hire a handyman uh, in London uh, for, for twelve pounds an hour or something, and uh, and they censored it because the word man was in it, and therefore that breaches their um, their rules. And so, okay, well then we you change it, right? And in you know, I, I had a couple of other other censorship issues with Facebook uh, of similarly idiotic and similarly mundane things, whereby it goes into this black box. Uh, and then it comes out, and the and this unaccountable corporate corporation has made a decision. And so, whether or not you think about, you know, the word handyman should be used or not, um, I don't think that banning and censoring job advertisements on that basis really makes sense. Um, and and to you know go back to this underlying issue here of Dr. Wachowski, you know, if he is right, then then he will prosper. If he is wrong, he will be discredited. Well, on the the censorship side of it. Uh, one of the episode, uh, episodes I did with Stuart where we talked about sort of coronavirus and um, the 
the London Reel and David Icke interview, uh, after I uploaded that episode, all the monetization for the dynamic adverts that I put on my podcast were taken off. And um, I, I, I emailed it and essentially it was, it, it was reinstated 20, uh, 24, 48 hours later, I think it was. Uh, I've, I've actually chosen not to put it on again because I thought, well, if this, if this type of thing is what's going to start happening, I'd rather not have it because I'd rather not have, uh, even though I don't, I didn't make an awful lot of money from adverts for the podcast. Um, I wouldn't want something that might be in the back of my head if it starts making more money, you know, where all of a sudden you do start wanting to censor what you're going to say on, uh, on the show, just because it might disappear like the, uh, the monetization for other episodes. But this seems to be something that's going to start affecting everybody from people that get hundreds of downloads for things, um, a, a day, like someone like Joe Rogan or for someone like me, which gets a few thousand over the course of a month. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, we're now living in the world where our corporate overlords are, are uh, making these decisions about what is true and what is not and what is permitted and what is prohibited. And I think it's scary. Uh, you know, I, I think it's just some, something bizarre that, you know, I thought of myself as a you know relatively mainstream sort of guy. And, and now here I am, it's the, you know, complaining about the rise of corporate uh, hegemony over our intellectual space. Uh, and, and the thing about it here is that the, the value of freedom of speech is not in the 99% of stuff that is mundane, but in the 1% of stuff that is outlier, that is controversial. And so, and so I, you know, think that, you know, if Dr. Wachowski is, is right or wrong, it's not for me to decide, but it's also not, certainly not for YouTube to decide uh, whether or not I should be allowed to see that. Um, but yeah. on the other hand, you have to also recognize that these corporations, if they don't want to advertise around, around, you know, Dr. David Eek, I, I don't even know how to pronounce this guy's name, but if they don't want to advertise around it, then that's, you know, I guess they have a right to freedom of association too. I don't know what the solution is here, but I certainly know that it's a, you know, it's a scary little world we live in. I find it strange because I, I personally don't believe that the um, advertisers care. I think, I think, I think the advertising companies are interested in um, exposure and traction for, from those viewers. So, it it almost seems like YouTube and Twitter are actually hemorrhaging money for an ideological stand that for something that for the, what their company policy believes in. Uh, look, possibly I don't I don't I don't know on that on about any of that business. Um, I know last time uh, last time you were on the podcast, we were both uh, quite critical of the Isle of Man coming out of lockdown for trades and i was just wondering how you felt um how you felt about that because i i'm not gonna lie i didn't expect to be wrong when we had that when we had that discussion and i'm quite surprised how things have gone after we've come out of lockdown or at least after sort of start a trade start to go back to work yeah, sure. And so I, I think it's great that, 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 that so many people here on the Isle of Man are continuing to socially distance. Um, and I think you've got to remember here that there's a difference between what the government allows and what people will actually do. Mm. And I think it's important to recognise that the government here is setting a series of, as it were, ceilings for um, for behaviour. Um, and I think that it is, you know, you, what we will see is that the people um, uh, are being very, very careful because they're much more perceptive to the risks here than the government ever was. Um, 
and uh, you know, I, th- I think obviously it's good that people are not not getting getting uh, getting infected so much so quickly, uh, and we'll see how it goes in coming days and weeks and so on. How do you feel about schools? Like the idea, the, the schools going back now, or it, uh, the or them going back in the UK, and I, I believe nurseries are going back soon in the Isle of Man. Sure. And so I guess my answer to this sort of issue is very similar to what I said about the about the um, the trades and so on a few weeks back, and that is that I do not believe that there is one centralised expert who knows everything, but rather different families will have different needs and different risks. Uh, and because I have a lot of humility in my life, uh, you know, uh, there is, you know, nothing I could imagine more foreign to me than to, to to tell someone else what what they must do with their family, what they must do with their children. And so, you know, if Michael Joseph was king of the world, I'd say, hey, look, if you want to send your kids to school, then let let us find a safe way to do that. Uh, if you do not want to send your kids to school, well, let us find a safe way to do that as well, uh, because you need to, you know, the balance the competing demands uh, and the competing risks. And there are there is value obviously in children going to school. There is also risk, you know, obviously in children going to school. And the best people to balance those risks are the families. Uh, and so Michael Joseph will never be telling you know the the Stevens family, you know, hey, you should send your kids to school or you should keep your kids at home. You know, that is that decision about what is right is is best for you because different families have different circumstances. Uh, and I think the fatal conceit. Um, and I use that phrase very deliberately. The fatal conceit of these so-called experts who who try and micromanage other people's lives is that they do not know what is right for for every family. The people who who are best to look after your children is you. Yeah, um, I agree with that. I uh, I I think the problem here is the it's it might be counterintuitive uh, what's best because the. Uh, what would what would be natural human nature would always be to look after the youngest in these situations where the whole the whole COVID thing seems to switch switch things on its head because um, it we it would seem that the younger the child the uh, the safer they are. Um, I don't I don't believe there's been a a case of it in a, a case of COVID in an infant apart from there was a baby that was born with it, but I believe the baby recovered. I think sure, and so yeah, so so I I don't I don't I don't hold myself out to be a, a scientific expert, and so I don't want to summarise the scientific advice any more than to say, look, it sort of appears to me that that children are very unlikely to be you know suffer terribly here, um, but there are a whole bunch of other consequences here in that in that the risks uh, it's not just a, a binary case, do you get infected or do you not, uh, but there are also a, a whole scale of different risks um, that also impact other people in the family. And so, for example, if you have a, a someone in your family who is in your household who has, you know, their immune system suppressed, you know, let's say because they have HIV or because they have a cancer or, mm-hmm. or because they have some other illness, right, then the risk profile for that family is very different to the risk profile of, of you know, other families. And so, and so, you know, what you decide for your family is, well, that's fine. You know, you do, you do what's right for your family uh, and you should. And, and so I'm very nervous of, of people, you know, trying to blank, impose a blanket rule across the whole community um, because we also have to consider the risk on the other side. Is that, you know, some children uh, do not, as you know, as we were speaking, you know, 10 or 20 minutes ago, uh, you know, some children do not live in very privileged households. Uh, some some households do not have good uh, facilities for their children to learn from home. Uh, some some households and some children need 
you know, they're teachers. You know, teachers have a lot of value in our community. They do wonderful work to teach our children. Uh, and that skill and expertise is not easily replicated by parents in a, you know, in a haphazard way, you know, with six weeks of, of pandemic uh, restrictions. Uh, and, so, and so that is the other side of the ledger. Uh, you know, I wrote uh, recently uh, about a, about a, grand, a grandmother, um, you know, someone who is, say, 75 years old. And, you know, whether or not she hugs her children or hugs her grandchildren uh, needs to compare the two different risks. One is the risk of getting the disease, um, but you've also got to compare the risk of not hugging your grandchildren. You know, those are two things on opposite sides of the ledger. Uh, and so Michael Josem does not tell people whether or not they should or should not hug their grandkids. Um, you know, I think that is a decision for, for each family to make about what is right for them. Yeah, I um, I, I, I thought this social distance in between two different households and um, family members, I found that a strange thing. I could, I could understand the um, the distancing between complete strangers or friend groups because you don't you you don't know what the friend groups are doing outside of speaking to you um how for, for instance my father uh lives two two minutes up the road from me um my girlfriend and i live with our son um i know we're not going anywhere i know my dad pretty much isn't seeing anybody apart from us and the and the idea that it it was a criminal offence up until I, I believe tomorrow, um, for us to get together, that seemed like a strange, a strange arrangement to me. Yeah, I I agree. And so like you know again you know I don't I don't know your your grandfather's situation or your father's situation. Sorry. And so you know, but you could imagine that that a hypothetical situation if if you know if your father's going to die in three days anyway. You know, that obviously this is made up and let us let us touch wood and hope that he does not. But we can imagine a situation where someone's about to pass away anyway. Well, what does it matter if they get coronavirus? Yeah. You, like, you know, like that's, that's a silly balance of the risk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in these sort of things, you know, you've got to, got to be careful. You've got to balance and do what's right because these one-size-fits-all models, that you know, don't work. Uh, you know, the, there is no such thing as the best pizza in the world. While I joke about it, you know, ultimately, you know, the best pizza is the pizza that you enjoy. You know, if you if you love a pepperoni pizza, that's great. Or, you know, your your wife or your girlfriend or your husband or your brother or your sister or whatever might prefer margarita. Someone else might prefer supreme. Uh, and so the idea that we can have one one set of, you know, if we can't even have one universal pizza, something as simple as a pizza, you know, how the hell can we have one set of guidelines for all human interactions? You know, I think that's nonsense. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy that the more the more these things sort of crumble away as we start to come out of this, which um, it seems seems to be, if everything keeps going well for the for the Isle of Man at least, uh, it seems to be quicker than I thought it was going to be. Um, I'm surprised at the position we're in now. I don't know about you, um, but yeah, the more more of these things that come down, hopefully, is the more. Uh, the like the less stresses for people. I, I hate the idea that um, for all, all like all the continued lockdowns, if if we didn't need to continue lockdowns in certain places, to just do it for the sake of safety, um, without really thinking about whether that safety is necessary. The idea of like you say, people that maybe maybe going to die tomorrow or two months or three months or at the end of the year, the idea that their last year is essentially in captivity that that really upsets me 
Yeah, I, I agree very much. And, you know, all these things requires competing balance, competing balancing of risks. Uh, you know, if you take, you know, take, for example, our 75-year-old hypothetical, you know, you know, grandmother, you know, talking about hugging their kids, you know, you have the, the cost and the benefit on either side there. You know, when they would have got a driver's license in the 1960s, you know, it's roughly 30 times more dangerous to drive, you know, a car back then than it is today. Right. But, you know, that, and so therefore they, they, they were able to survive that risk. But they took the risk that, hey, you might die in a car accident. But the benefit is you have the benefit of the internal combustion engine, which allows you to transport things very easily. Uh, and so the, all these things require balancing um, and uh, all these things require people to you know figure out what is right for them. Um, on the subject of coming out of lockdown, uh, I've, I've looked at there's been various polls done lately, hasn't there, about uh, the uh, approval in Great Britain of the the lockdown. Um, I'm I'm surprised at the amount of people that want the lockdown extended. You know, it's it's been between sort of seventy seven percent and ninety percent, and then over ninety percent in some cases. Um, and I believe there was even a poll there where one of the options was to never lift the lockdown, and there was like twenty one percent of the people that partook in that census never wanted the lockdown to end do you, do you think we're sure. we're getting into we're going to get into a situation where we need to take the lockdown away regardless of what's going on around it because it itself is becoming dangerous so i think that what we what we see there is that talk is cheap and what really matters are actions and so if someone wants to stay in their house forever and to be isolated from the rest of the world, then that is an acceptable decision. And, you know, who am I to say they're wrong? Uh, you know, that, that is that is a decision that they should make about what is right and safe for them. Um, but also, you know, different people have different risk profiles. You know, someone who's young and, for example, you know, I've got a bunch of my friends who are, you know, in their 30s um, and uh, they have had the disease. Um, they've survived the disease. Um, we now know they're very, very unlikely to get the disease again. Uh, and so their risk profile is very different. And so, you know, they should be allowed to, you know, for example, go to work. Um, they should be allowed to earn money to pay for their rent and pay for their mortgage because you know, being homeless and having 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 no home sucks. You know, having no electricity sucks. Having no food is a shitty outcome. Uh, and so, you know, those people who, who want to go and do those things, you know, should be allowed to. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just worry that there's uh... – it it might end up with the vocal minority being listened to again. If if social media is is what we take our cues from here, which it seems to be, seems to have an awful lot of weight considering how many how few people are on it. Um, I, and I worry that if if people take that attitude as being the, like the general consensus, I I can see civil unrest happening in the UK. With like no, in not a great deal of time, if this carries on much longer. Yeah, look, look, I, th I think that's that's unlikely these days. Uh, but you know, I can imagine a scenario where that happens. If you if you had a very restrictive and imposed long term lockdown. You know, when I was uh, when we had the first few weeks here in the Isle of Man, you know, I was not even allowed out of my house um, because I did not have a garden. I did not. I'm not fortunate enough to. You know, my my apartment is only a relatively you know, it's a relatively nice apartment, but I do not have a balcony, I do not have a garden, and so not being allowed outside uh, was very onerous. So I can imagine those situations that people would, uh, you know, that would put a lot of stress uh, on on our social cohesion. Uh, and so, you know, it's at the, you know, 
that the way to move forward, you know, given we do not want to live in that situation forever, is we need to recognise that people are going to have to live with this disease in the same way that humans live with other diseases. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, you know, we'll take us take for example the last big disease scare of the 1980s and 1990s, which was HIV. You know, that changed people's behaviour. You had to be careful about who you were sleeping with. You had to be careful uh, about you know practicing safe sex. Uh, and that was an important part of, of life that we just now need to live with. I suspect that something analogous will happen here, is that we will need to be careful and need to live with this disease you know, in a way that continues to plot around in our community in some way. Uh, and that will require people to take responsibility for their own actions and to take responsibility for caring for their for their loved ones and neighbours and friends and so on. So you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see any other alternative because we know that that, that you know really harsh lockdown was unsustainable. Uh, we know that that isn't, you can't do that forever. Um, and so, and so we, when we talk about you know what adjustments we do going forward, you know, it's important that we allow people to have their say, uh, and it's important to allow people to do what is right for them and their family. I think it is. I worry that there's going to be a certain um, a certain group of people that are sat uh, sat at home thinking, you know, it's. I'm getting a large a large portion of what I was getting from my uh, uh, from my salary anyway, and I don't I don't particularly want to go back out to work, and I, I wonder how that's going to affect like essentially as paying for all everything that's been spent over the past few months, because realistically coming out of this we need everybody to want to get back to work like immediately you know it's, if if it's all possible and there's obviously going to be um, so many people left out of work and where it's not their fault. But if there's a, if there's people that, for, for good or bad, reassess their lives, you know, and reassess what's important, and maybe wants to want to spend more time at home. But do you think that might end up being a problem to actually get us out of this in the long run? Well, I think that there's a, a value in work uh, that comes not just from the very obvious income and money that you earn, mm -hmm. uh, but also the the, the dignity uh, and the purpose and the sense of service that you you have in, that comes from that. And so, for example, you know, in my in my work, you know, you know, back when I had a job, <laughs> uh, the um, you know, the, I I obviously enjoyed and was very grateful to get paid for doing that. Uh, but I also genuinely enjoyed the work that I was doing, the service that I was doing, that was helping get workers get jobs on building sites. You know, I thought I, I, I liked that. I liked the sense of purpose. It, it, you know, when, and when people said, hey, you know, hey, Michael Joseph, what do you do? You know, the, 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 that I enjoyed answering that question because I liked the answer. I liked the answer of, you know, I help workers get jobs on building sites. Uh, you know, and, and so in that sense, I, I liked that answer. That gave my life purpose. It gave my life dignity. Uh, and, you know, I think that for many people, that sort of dignity uh, is an important part of the work, you know, work equation. You know, it's not just about money, you know, although that is certainly very important, but being useful, being needed uh, and being uh, uh, wanted by your community um, as expressed in that work is, is an important part of the dignity of working. I think there's a lot of um, mental housekeeping gets done at work as well, because ju just the fact that you are um, either either being paid directly or um, for, for what you're doing or being paid by somebody else who's being paid the 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 mission is to get your job done in the sort of tidiest cleanest way possible you know most efficient way um i think that order is something that's very difficult to find somewhere else you know in in the in life um and i didn't realize until 
we had the lockdown then i went back to work i didn't realize just how much i i missed that order of things yeah exactly you know that that routine is important you know i, I miss you know that, that the trip to work i miss seeing people there i miss you know my friends i miss you know even seeing some people who had a degree of you know i don't know what the right word is tension or antagonism towards you know i enjoyed that uh, and uh, you know, and and that social interaction, um, that working towards a common goal, uh, it was valuable. Is valuable, and you know, I'm I'm sure it will return. I don't, I don't, I think that these sort of you know disasters will will affect, you know, you know how we behave. But in the long term, I believe that the long term human spirit uh, is much more uh, enduring than any particular disease ever will be. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly as well, because uh, community spirit seems to be more robust than I thought it was. I th- I thought the um, I thought community spirit had gone from w- what it was in sort of a person to person sense, and then just been transferred into this plastic uh, online shares likes. I'll give you a thumbs up here. That's not that's our new community spirit. That doesn't really mean anything. Um, I think that's one of the nice things I think we've seen from the the lockdown is people have been be- getting behind each other maybe not in not in sort of a, a whole island or a whole country sense but in small communities and small so like small local businesses have been have probably but there's probably been businesses for every business that's gone under or uh or is in trouble right now there's another business next door to them which was in trouble before coronavirus that's now thriving yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it's a one for one. Uh, you know, I looked in some uh, at some data in the US and it said for every ten jobs that have been destroyed as a result of the coronavirus, uh, there have been somewhat something in the order of three new jobs created. Uh, you know, and that's around things like food delivery, uh, you know, supermarket retailing, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, what is normal in the world of, of of an open economy, of a market economy like ours? Is that you have this idea of creative destruction, and that you know basically, you, if someone comes up with a better mousetrap, then the ma- better mousetrap sells, and and the older, shittier mousetrap dies. Uh, and so, you know, what we normally get is that form of creative destruction. What has happened so far in the coronavirus, uh, you know, pandemic is that we have had a lot of destruction, but not too much creation just yet. Uh, and so, I think that as the as the pandemic recedes, and as people learn to manage it in our lives. Uh, then I think it will be you know, something that we'll see a lot of creative uh, answers for the future. It could be things like drive-in cinemas. It could be things like more home delivery food. It could be things like more video conferencing. It could be you know a whole bunch of different things whereby people apply their money, their resources, and their time in different endeavours to the future, to the, what they did in the past. And so, therefore, that future uh, might well be a little bit more creative, a little bit more different to what uh, happened in you know, 2019 and be, beyond just now to sort of close it out of it um because we're coming towards the end what we think is going is the end let, let's we'll touch wood for second waves and stuff like that but at the moment I, I think I think we're probably at the end of the beginning I think that when you you what in in 10 years time if we were to describe May 2020 I think that you will describe you know the beginning of the beginning was the arrival of the disease into into China and it's spread throughout the world. Uh, and then we have this beginning phase of all the lockdowns and so on. And I suspect that as our community comes out of it, mm-hmm. uh, that I think you will think of this as the end of the beginning. I don't think this is the end. 
um, you know, sort of like uh, after the evacuation of Dunkirk. It's the end of the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and so now here, here we are. Uh, you know, I think there's a long fight ahead of us um, of this disease and, you know, other equivalent diseases in the future. Uh, and so, you know, in 10 or 100 years' time, they will describe May 2020 as the end of the beginning. And uh, let us see. Well, I noticed we've, uh, there's talks now of um, people looking into the how who handled the initial outbreak and, uh, I think China have been hesitant to let uh, people in for sort of an open investigation, which I, I, is going to come as a shock to you, obviously. Um, do, do you think <laughs> this is going to uh, this is going to? Well, it's obviously going to change the way the world operates. But are we headed into this sort of slightly fractured sort of globalization that we've been in, where all of a sudden countries realise, well, actually, the United Kingdom needs a um, medical industry or the we need we need a more a more locally robust food system for instance just in case things go worse next time um and are will we see the countries take that that step back from trade with china from taking the easy step of coming up with the ideas getting everything ready to ready to launch and then just sending everything to china to build so I think that there will be a lot of people who will be unhappy with the Chinese regime. But if you think about the economic impact here, the economic impact, I believe, has been hardest hit on those areas where you do not have globalised trade. And so things like your hairdresser, things like your local, you know, services, you know, whether it be your massage, your beauty therapist, those sort of businesses have all been continued, completely decimated throughout this uh, disaster. Um, you know, the, whereas those endeavours which are truly global, you know, whether it be electronics or online streaming or whatnot, they've been relatively strong. And so what I think that tells us is that is that the opportunity for stability and strength and resilience in the future will come not from having necessarily local supplies, but rather will come from having a diversity of supplies. That is why, you know, if you think of two Asian countries, uh, one being uh, North Korea and one being Singapore, uh, because Singapore use, imports food from a large number of different places, there is never going to be starvation in Singapore in any foreseeable future. But because North Korea insists only on local self-produced food, there is a very high risk to famine and, and, and starvation. And so I think that as we go ahead to the future, you know, I think that people will want to have, uh, you know, resilient supply chains. And that probably means that uh, you have a little bit less, well, uh, probably a lot less connection to China, because now we know there's all these, it's very obvious that there are now a lot more risks there. Uh, but uh, that might mean that, you know, there's more trading between the UK and uh, and the USA or the Isle of Man and Europe and, and you know, other free Western democratic countries that are a lot more resilient and a lot more stable than, uh, than a, you know, a despotic country like China. Yeah. Yeah. I can see what you mean. Um, I just, I just hope there's some, right. Some repercussions for, for China. So they can't carry on being the bully that they've been sort of on the, on the global scale, especially after something like Absolutely. this. Absolutely. And, and I think there will be because, you know, like I, I don't want to buy, you know, my, you know, Chinese stuff at the moment. I'm pretty unhappy with them. Uh, and I think that we can make a bunch of those changes. So, for example, one of the things I suggested the other day is that on online retailers 
should be required to display the place of manufacture of items that they sell. Obviously, if you go into your local supermarket, it says on your packaged item, you know, product of Malaysia or product of Spain or wherever. But when you buy something online, that that packet, that display label is not displayed there. Uh, and so I think there's a bunch of things we can do like that that will allow people to make decisions to control where they're buying stuff. And so, therefore, to make a better choice uh, and to avoid China if you want. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good idea. I'd never thought about that, because especially you are shopping blind, really, on uh, uh, online. You know, unless you're buying something specific, like you know what what it is and where it's come from, where it's like a piece of tech, for instance. But for all the everyday things we use, I would I would imagine a lot of those things are still produced in China. Oh, I'm sure some of them are. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you should you and you know, businesses that require reliable supply chains in the future, you know, might have the option to pay an extra, you know, couple of pounds per kilogram or a couple of dollars per meter or whatever it is uh, to to have a different uh, supply chain. And, you know, that'll be good. And I think that, that sort of transparency will be valuable. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it'll mean that, uh, you know, we can uh, buy, buy things from Taiwan uh, and Freedom China rather than uh, the Communist Party. Yeah indeed um michael joseph it's been a pleasure as usual uh i've thank you very much Lee. thank you for having us I, I thought the other day that when you've been on before uh we've always said goodbye and i've never given you the opportunity to tell people where they can find like stuff you write and things so if you want to tell people where to go that'd be handy oh sure okay um i, I guess i i tweet on the twitter at, at michael joseph m-i-c-h-a-e-l joseph uh and then uh also online at michaeljoseph.com it's all pretty simple. Uh, if you type my name into Google, your call comes up. There was another Michael Joseph, but he died back in October 2011. So now, uh, like in Highlander, there can only be one. <laughs> I hope you decapitated him. Anyway, cheers, mate. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.